0: I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Sandra, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Treatment Update for Adults Living with Acute Lymphocytic Leukemia or ALL. Um, Today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations as well. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have over 452 participants on the program today. So there's a lot of you all over on, on, on this call today. And many of you come from the United States from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Ireland, Nepal, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So a bit of a global call as well, and it's really a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And today's program is supported by an educational donation provided by Amgen and SHARE, and I'd really like to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, really the best of the best, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Litzow, and Dr. Litzow is consultant, Division of Hematology, chair, Myeloid Disease Group professor of medicine, College of Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Litzo is going to be addressing an overview of acute lymphocytic or lymphoblastic leukemia, (ALL) in adults, current standard of care, the role of minimal residual disease monitoring, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Litzell.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. Um, it's a great honor for me to participate uh, in this uh, teleconference uh, today. Uh, I'm going to start out talking a little bit about uh, acute uh, lymphoblastic leukemia and uh, what this is, and then uh, touch on uh, treatment, uh, the standards of treatment that we use, and then talk about how we monitor patients' response to treatment. Mm-hmm. So we typically uh, refer to this disease as acute lymphoblastic leukemia, uh, and that refers to the blast cells that we find in the bone marrow and the blood. I like to tell my patients that your bone marrow is your blood cell factory. It's producing the red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets that we all need to live. There are young cells in our bone marrow that we call stem cells, Uh, I sometimes refer to them as the mother cells of the bone marrow. So the stem cells produce all these different normal types of blood cells. But when someone develops leukemia, something goes awry in one of the young cells in the bone marrow. And in this case, it's a young cell that's beginning to mature to become a cell called a lymphocyte, which is a form of white blood cell. But instead of maturing all the way, it maintains its immaturity, it's still a large cell and it produces more of itself. And these are the blast cells that initially build up in the bone marrow and then eventually can spill out into the blood and then that can raise the white blood count and we find these blast cells out in the blood. Sometimes these blast cells can get into other organs in the body, typically the lymph nodes or the spleen, but sometimes can appear in other organs and sometimes in the Uh, even in the spinal fluid and in the central nervous system. So we're learning more and more about uh, how this leukemia develops and some of the abnormalities that occur in these blast cells, uh, particularly at the, uh, more recently, the molecular level, looking for uh, mutations in specific genes that typically normally would control the development of these blood cells. But again, because they get mutated, they contribute to or cause this buildup of these abnormal blast cells. Typically, this doesn't occur overnight, but can develop over time, although it eventually reaches the point where then someone starts to feel poorly and they seek medical attention. When they come to medical attention, uh, we do a number of diagnostic procedures. We assess the blood. We typically do a bone marrow biopsy to characterize what type of leukemia it is. And there's different subtypes of of acute uh, lymphoblastic leukemia. There's two main types of lymphocytes in our body. There's called B cells and T cells. And so you can get a leukemia that can involve either one of these two types of cells. Once we've diagnosed the patient and uh, assess them, sometimes we use CT scanning and other testing. Then we initiate a treatment course. Oftentimes we have patients have a central line put in, either a pick line in their arm or a Hickman or a Groshon catheter in their chest. that goes into a central vein in the chest, and then we can draw their blood from that catheter and then also administer chemotherapy and when their blood counts become low transfusions and other medications. The standard of care currently for acute lymphoblastic leukemia is to use uh, multiple different chemotherapy drugs. The rationale for this is that if the leukemia cells might be resistant to one drug, we think and hope that they can be sensitive to one of the other drugs, so we combine these so that we're trying to attack the leukemia from multiple different directions. Corticosteroids or cortisone-type medicines are an important part of the treatment, as they can also reduce the leukemic blast cells. There's different combinations of these drugs that are used, but the the drugs tend to be similar from one regimen to another. In more recent times, uh, we've learned a lot uh, from our pediatric colleagues. Um, This this leukemia is more common in children, and our pediatric colleagues have vast experience in treating it, and we found that using some of their uh, treatment programs and extending them to uh, young adults, even up to middle age, uh, looks to improve improve the results. So we sometimes call these pediatric-inspired or pediatric-like regimens. In older adults, we uh, also use these same drugs, but in different schedules, sometimes in somewhat lower doses. There's been a big uh, advance in oncology and cancer care in general with what is called immunotherapy. Uh, immune therapy, so this is uh, taking advantage of a person's immune system uh, to treat their uh, leukemia. Uh, there are proteins in our bodies that we call antibodies that attach to bacteria and help us fight infection, but we have developed antibodies that can react with cells, and so there's uh, antibody-mediated treatments that we uh can add to the chemotherapy or use instead of the chemotherapy. Some examples of this would be a drug called rituximab or rituxin that we add to the chemotherapy. We can link these antibodies to chemotherapy drugs. Uh, Dr. D'Angelo has a lot of experience with a drug called inotuzumab, which was uh approved by the FDA last year and is used for patients uh, whose leukemia has come back after prior treatment, and Dr. D'Angelo is leading a study that's uh, going to look at how we can use this inetuzumab agent uh, and incorporate it into the upfront or the treatment of newly diagnosed patients. There's a drug called blinatumumab that combines two uh, different antibodies to bring some normal immune cells called uh, T-cells in close proximity to the leukemia cell and help uh, kill it. This is also approved for patients whose leukemia has come back, and I have the privilege of leading a study where we're testing this in in newly diagnosed uh, patients. Many of you have probably heard about what are called CAR T-cells, chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. This is taking some of these T cells from a patient, expanding them and modifying them in the laboratory and then giving them back to the patient. And this has uh, shown great success in treating uh, relapsed uh, patients. And it's currently approved in the United States, but only for uh, children and young adults up to the age of 25. We're still trying to study how best to use this in, in older adults and find the correct dose. But there are clinical trials using uh, those. And CAR T cells uh, will likely be moved into the frontline treatment in the future. The other treatment that's of importance is uh, bone marrow transplant, which has an important role to play in patients that we consider to be high risk. For their acute uh, lymphoblastic leukemia, where we think that chemotherapy is not going to be sufficient to keep it under control, and we think that a transplant would help to uh, prevent it from coming back. If patients have relapsed after chemotherapy and we get them back in remission, then we often think about trying to do a transplant then, because further chemotherapy is not likely going to keep their leukemia under control. There's one other important subset of acute lymphoblastic leukemia uh, where there's an abnormal chromosome that we call the Philadelphia chromosome because it was first described by some doctors in Philadelphia, and we have drugs, uh, oral drugs that are very active against the, the genes that are abnormal in the Philadelphia chromosome, and we add those to chemotherapy, and that has Improve the results with Philadelphia chromosome uh, ALL significantly. Last thing I want to touch on is uh, what we call minimal residual disease monitoring. So, when a patient's been diagnosed with uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia or ALL and we start treatment, then we have to monitor how they're responding and typically we do bone marrow biopsies at uh, uh, set intervals through their treatment. When we do the bone marrow biopsy, we look to see how much the blast cells that we saw at the beginning have gone down in number, and we want to get those down to under 5% of all the cells in the bone marrow. But we've learned over time that if a patient has 3% blasts in their bone marrow, it doesn't mean that things are now normal, because some of those blast cells could still be leukemia blast cells. The pathologists that we work with can't always look at a blast cell and say, this one's a normal one, this one's an abnormal one. But we can take some of the bone marrow now, and there's different ways that we can assess this, but we can look for low levels of the leukemia, even when the blasts are down at a low percentage. One of the common ways is to run them through a machine that uh, uses laser beams and we label the cells before we put them in the machine with some of these antibodies that I talked about that are linked to a fluorescent probe. And so we can look at the pattern of cells that we're seeing, and we can see if there are some small numbers of leukemia cells that are hiding there. And if we see that, we know that despite a person being in remission, with a low level of blast in their bone marrow, they're still going to be at high risk for their leukemia growing back again. So that will sometimes lead us to alter our treatment. Blenitumumab, a drug I mentioned earlier, was just approved by the FDA for treatment of patients that are in remission but have these low levels of leukemia that we can pick up with this flow cytometry result. There's other ways we can also measure minimal residual disease, and I don't have time to go into those. Um, This flow cytometry approach with the laser lights, that's most most commonly used particularly here uh, in the United States. The last thing I want to briefly touch on is uh, how we address patients' quality of life as they go through this life-altering treatment. Obviously, ALL is a very serious diagnosis, can be life-threatening, and so we want to do all we can to try to get rid of the leukemia for patients, but we don't want to ignore what they're going through and the potential side effects that they experience with their treatment. So whenever we see our patients, we're asking about their quality of life, we're asking about what side effects they're experiencing We're seeing if we need to modify some of the doses of the drugs that we're giving, some of their chemotherapy, or whether in some cases we need to switch to a different program if they're having excessive side effects from a particular uh, regimen. So this is something that uh, Dr. D'Angelo and I and our colleagues uh, pay attention to because we want to maximize our chances of controlling and curing the leukemia, but at the same time, minimizing side effects and trying to maximize a person's quality of life as best we can as they go through this arduous process. So I think with that, I will uh, uh, conclude uh, and appreciate, again, the opportunity to share some of my thoughts with you.
1: Well, oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lutzler. That was really outstanding, and you really set the nice stage for this today's program, so I lots of information, and so thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Daniel D'Angelo. Dr. D'Angelo is Director of Clinical and Translational Research, Adult Leukemia Institute Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Associate Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And um, Dr. Uh, D'Angelo is going to be addressing therapy for relapsed refractory, ALL, new approaches and targeted therapy the important role of clinical trials, and managing complications and side effects. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. D'Angelo.
3: Thank you very much, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, that was a wonderful review by uh, my good colleague uh, and friend, Mark uh, Litzow, and uh, I'll try and uh, take up the, uh, uh, his shoulders and uh, continue with the uh, treatment of patients with relapsed and refractory uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. As Mark had alluded to, there's uh, been many strides in uh, the treatment of adult patients trying to mirror our pediatric colleagues in terms of improving the outcomes for our adult patients. And although uh, more and more patients are getting into remission and the relapse rate is lower and lower, relapse still remains a problem that needs to be dealt with. Chemotherapy options uh, for patients uh, getting uh, newly diag- with newly diagnosed acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Uh, typically uh, includes many, many different forms of uh, chemotherapeutic agents. And so when patients relapse, they've often seen most of the uh, armamentarium or the different types of chemotherapy that we've already administered. And so the practice has been, up until recently, to use some of the same agents that they've already received, but at higher doses. Uh, And although that can achieve remission in many patients, uh, remissions are often short. Uh, and and need to be uh, uh, consolidated or or followed up with a stem cell transplant. So fortunately, there's been significant developments in the field of relapsed or refractory acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and I just want to set the stage. There's three major forms of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. There's the B-cell phenotype, which is uh, 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 types of cells that that typically uh, make antibodies. There's the T-cell type that accounts for about 15% of adult ALL, and the T cells in our body are the uh, uh, regulators of the immune system. Going back to the B cell, about a third of adult patients will have something called the Philadelphia chromosome, uh, and and Mark has already discussed a little bit about that, uh, but I'll highlight that uh, again a little bit later. So in the field of the B cell, the the major uh, component of ALL, uh, there's been three new developments in terms of treating patients with relapsed refractory uh, leukemia. Uh, The first drug that was approved both in the uh, United States as well as Europe is blinatumumab. And as Mark discussed, this is a novel uh, bispecific antibody that binds to the patient's tumor cells and to their own T cells, their own immune cells, uh, which results in activation of the patient's own immune cells and propagation of that immune uh, reaction to try and destroy uh, the patient's cancer cells. So there's really no chemotherapy involved, it's more of an immune uh, stimulant, if you will. And as a single agent, Blinatumab is able to get a large percentage of patients, both Philadelphia negative as well as Philadelphia positive uh, ALL into remission. But, it, but this is a question that often comes up with patients. It's only used in patients with B-cell ALL and patients who have a molecule that's on the surface of their, uh, of their disease called CD19, which is present in about 95% of patients with B-cell ALL. This was compared uh, to chemotherapy, high-dose chemotherapy, as I alluded to, and it was found that blinitumumab was superior both in achieving a, a higher remission rate, but also a more durable remission. And this led to full approval in both the United States as well as Europe for blinatumomab for patients with relapse or refractory B-cell ALL, both Philadelphia negative and Philadelphia positive. The second novel therapy is a drug called inotuzumab, which is slightly different than blinatumomab. Inotuzumab is an, is an antibody Uh, Instead of being directed against that CD19, it's directed against CD22, only present on B cells, and instead of 95% like CD19, present on about 90% of patients with B cell ALL. And inotuzumab carries a chemotherapy with it, and so when it attaches to the cancer cells, the chemotherapy then is internalized and causes the cancer cell uh, uh, to, to die and then patients go into remission. Again, high remission rates can be seen with inotuzumab and when a, a phase three, a randomized trial, compared inotuzumab to high doses of standard chemotherapy, inotuzumab was also superior in the same way that blinatumumab was in terms of getting more patients into remission and having the remissions become more durable. So both inotuzumab and blinitumab are now approved in the United States as well as most areas of Western Europe. And these have really been huge successes in terms of uh, uh, improving the outcome of our patients with relapsed and or refractory leukemia. But they only treat patients with B-cell disease. And both of these really should be viewed as bridge to transplant. Uh, Although durable and, uh, and some patients can be cured with just blinatumab or uh more patients will stay in remission if they're able to proceed to a stem cell transplantation once they achieve remission. In addition to these two approaches is the CAR cells. CAR stands for Chimeric Antigen Receptor, and this is a really novel technology, and Dr. Litzau alluded to this initially, but let me just expand upon what he said. What's, t- what's done here is that the patient's T cells are taken from the patient, and these are normal T cells. And then they're engineered so that these T cells now will react against the patient's own leukemia cells. So it's a rather novel approach. And then two to four weeks later, after these cells have been engineered to react to the patient's cells and have been grown to sufficient quantity, these cells are then infused back to the patient in order to establish a remission and hopefully a durable remission. Not all patients are then treated with transplant. We don't know what the best approach is after patients receive a CAR. But there are some unusual toxicities with CARs as there are with and beninituzumab that can be seen and can be relatively easily dealt with. So these three strategies are improving the outcome of our patients with relapsed refractory uh, disease. Other approaches, uh, targeted approaches, and I would argue that these three approaches are targeted approaches, but other targeted approaches that are in development and have been approved are really engineered for the Philadelphia positive disease. Patients with Philadelphia positive acute lymphoblastic leukemia have a particular gene that's mutated, and this gene can be targeted by a variety of oral drugs, the first being glevic. But now there's a total of five drugs, Tasigna, Sprysil, Eclusig, and Busulif, that all have activity in patients with Philadelphia-positive acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And there are novel drugs that are also in development, a new drug called ABL001. And so these drugs are really on the, on the mode of, of improving the outcomes for our patients with Philadelphia-positive ALL. So what about T-cell ALL? Well, there's no good targets for T-cell ALL. There's a drug that I helped develop through the cooperative groups in the United States called nolarabine, and this is the only agent that's specific for T-cell ALL that is currently being incorporated, at least in kids, in upfront therapy. So in terms of complicated effects, uh, blinatumomab has one of the unusual side effects as it stimulates the immune system that patients can develop fevers, Uh, But these can be uh, easily corrected uh, with uh, steroids like prednisone or dexamethasone. And patients can also develop uh, confusion from the idea that their immune system, again, is being stimulated and activated. Similarly to these uh, uh, side effects, CAR T cells also cause very similar but a little bit more severe side effects. We refer to these as cytokine release syndrome, CRS and uh, a neurologic toxicity, which can be confusion. And this is why patients after they receive their car cells are often kept in the hospital for monitoring. But again, we have improved methods uh, to recognize early side effects and to treat these side effects. Inutuzumab, uh the agent, the chemotherapeutic agent that is uh, attached to the inatuzumab antibody can cause some liver dysfunction and some complications after transplant. And it's very important that patients are seen by, by an experienced transplant physician to monitor, and if a patient develops a liver toxicity, uh, that, these, uh, uh, that immediate therapy is uh, in, initiated uh, to try and ameliorate uh, the hepatic or liver toxicity that inotuzumab can induce. So what about the importance of clinical trials? And with this I'll finish. Uh, None of these uh, agents, three new agents within the last year and a half approved for B cell ALL, none of these agents would have been developed without patient enrollment in clinical trials. Both in terms of phase one trial development, phase one trials is where we're trying to find the best dose and schedule for a particular agent, phase two trials where we're trying to figure out whether the agent works or not, and then of course the phase three or registration trial where we're comparing the novel drug versus uh, the standard therapy. And without patient participation, there's no way that these drugs would have been developed or approved by the regulatory agencies both in the United States as well as Europe. So, uh, you know, my, always my, uh, uh, I'm impressed by Uh, the perseverance of patients and their families who participate on clinical trials because without these uh, uh, heroic individuals, uh, neither Mark Litzau or myself would be able to do our job and nor would we be able to push the frontiers to uh, cure more and more patients. Uh, But the outlook is positive for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, multiple new agents for both T-cell, the three new agents for B-cell ALL, and five drugs, with one on the way for Philadelphia-positive ALL. So I think, I believe the uh, future is bright uh, with many options for patients. Uh, and with that, I'll conclude.
1: Well, oh, thank you so much, Dr. D'Angelo. That was an outstanding presentation, and uh, really lots of information for everybody. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker um, is Ms. Caroline Evelyn and Ms. Evelyn is an online is our online support group. Program Director at Cancer Care, and Ms. Edlund is going to present to you um, Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Edlund.
4: Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of
1: this call today,
4: and I would like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional supportive services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources, and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that may arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face groups in our local offices in the New York City area. Area as a phone and online groups. In fact, we offer an online group dedicated to the needs and experiences of people diagnosed with ALL and other kinds of blood cancers. You can register on Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org. This group and our groups in general offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this means for you and your loved ones. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help. So please do consider contacting us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our college social work support. And thank you so much for your attention and the uh, opportunity
1: to speak today. Thank you so much, Ms. Edlin. That was really wonderful, Caroline. That was a wonderful description of our services and um, our online support groups are a wonderful uh, place for people to get that support that Caroline so clearly described. And we have an online support group for people living, adults living with ALL, so that's something to consider. Um, and it is available to people internationally as well. Although many of our services are national in scope. Our online support groups and these education workshops as well welcome people from all over the world. And um, so um, it's a nice resource for all of you. So now we do have time for questions. Um, actually, um, this is terrific. I want to thank our speakers and that we have lots of time for questions, and so start to prepare your questions, and actually um, I'm going to ask Sandra to explain to you how to queue up for questions and bring all of our speakers on board so we can take the questions. Okay, Sandra.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then 1.
1: And we have a question from our online participants, um, and I'm going to give this question to Dr. Lutzow um, to start with. What is the connection between viral infections and ALL?
2: Uh, that's an uh, uh, interesting uh, and uh, challenging uh, question. Um, there... Um, have been studies over the years, uh and we do know uh in uh rare instances, probably it's been better defined in animals that uh certain viruses uh uh can uh, cause uh leukemia. Um, there is uh a virus that uh many of us know about uh, called Epstein Barr virus. Uh this is the virus that causes infectious uh, mononucleosis, and in uh, certain settings, uh, this virus can cause uh, patients, particularly patients who are immunosuppressed, such as after a solid organ transplant, uh, to uh, to develop a, a leukemia or, more commonly, a, a type of lymphoma, which is a disorder similar to uh a l l but tends to uh involve the uh, lymph nodes more and the vast majority of uh patients uh who uh that we see that develop a l l uh we don't know um, of particular viruses that that cause um, that are directly contributory to co- to causing the acute lymphoblastic uh, leukemia. Certainly viral infections are a complication that we see uh, after treatment uh, for ALL because a person's immune system is suppressed, so that's a setting where viral infections are important, Um, and uh, there also can be, uh, uh, unfortunately, a prominent problem after uh, a bone marrow transplant. Excellent.
1: Thank you thank you very much and Dr. D'Angelo, do you want to add anything
3: to that or no i think uh I think mark uh, <laughs> described it uh, well i mean one uh one issue that's uh been that came up in the uh media is a difference uh in which I'm not sure the reader uh, the uh question was referring to this. Is a difference in terms of the uh, incidence of uh, lymphoid diseases, both ALL and lymphoma, in developed countries versus third world countries in terms of uh, chronic infections. And there does seem to be a slight increased risk uh, uh, of developing uh, uh, leukemia and lymphomas uh, in developed countries due to the fact that we don't we're not exposed to as many infections. Of course, that doesn't mean that you should go out and get an infection. It just has to do with how the immune system adapts itself uh, to the nature around us.
1: Thank you. Very interesting. Great questions and great speakers to address them. Um, another question, um, and I'll uh, give this question to you. Can AL be found early? Uh
2: that's also a, an excellent uh, question. Um, it's a difficult one. Uh many of you are obviously familiar with a lot of uh, screening uh screening tests and screening procedures that are done to try to pick up uh cancers early. Notable uh examples would be mammography for women uh and the prostate-specific antigen or PSA test for uh, uh, prostate cancer. Um, There's a lot of controversy about screening in terms of, you know, how, uh, not so much with mammography or PSA, although even in those circumstances there has been at times, uh, you know, determining, you know, is it truly beneficial to pick up a cancer early? I mean, it, it seems like it would be, but are you truly you know helping a patient and, and benefiting them and you know what's the cost effectiveness you know how many people do you have to screen to pick up a a cancer so these are just some of the general uh questions that people ask when they talk about screening for uh, uh different diseases and unfortunately with ALL it is a relatively rare uh, leukemia uh and we don't have uh, uh we also don't have good tests that say could uh uh pick it up uh early uh so you know to say we're going to do screening for ALL uh just uh frankly is not not practical uh and not feasible at, at this time uh so so it, it it is difficult uh for um for us to say that oh, we can we can detect it you know early and you know, prevent it from, you know, making a person sick or causing other complications.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, Dr. D'Angelo, do you wish to add anything?
2: Yeah, no, I think
3: Mark covered it well. I mean, I'll I'd, I'd just uh, make one, you know, a couple of just uh, refined points is, you know, as he alluded to, you know, in such rare diseases, it can be very difficult to screen general populations. And even for patients at risk, it's very hard because, you know, the incidence of acute lymphoblastic leukemia is so rare uh, and the lead time uh, to looking at blood tests versus having the disease is very uh, is very limited. On the flip coin, uh, and Mark talked about this during his uh, presentation, is uh, once we know a patient has leukemia, there are methods to detect it early in terms of trying to predict whether or not it's gonna, there's a chance of it coming back. And Mark talked about minimal residual disease. Of course, that's not telling... Are detecting whether a patient's going to get leukemia at the beginning, but once a patient has leukemia, we use minimal residual disease to determine the risk of a patient uh, getting it back and or picking it up early, if you will, so that we can intervene before it's full-blown cancer. Uh, And so that technology has developed at least in the setting of monitoring, which has been very useful, but we just don't have an equivalent tool uh, uh, for newly diagnosed patients.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And I have a question for you, Doctor D'Angelo. Um, is the treatment procedure similar for adults with ALL and children with ALL?
3: Uh another outstanding question. So, you know, the, the doses of chemotherapy are a little different and some of the diseases the, the the not the diseases but the the subsets of ALL are a little bit different uh in terms of uh the adult setting and the pediatric setting. Uh, the uh, the drugs are all very similar, uh, specifically when you look at younger adults. And uh, Mark talked about this. He said that uh, over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, newly diagnosed adults, especially younger adults, patients under 40, for example, are being tre- treated with pediatric or pediatric-inspired studies uh, using the same drugs and the same uh, doses by and large as we are uh, uh, in the adult setting. Uh, uh, oddly enough, uh, blinitumab and inotuzumab got approval first in adult patients before pediatric patients, whereas the CAR T cells were approved in pediatric and young adults up to age 26, uh, in uh, uh, at least in the United States, uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for relapsed uh, ALL. So there are some differences in terms of uh, what drugs are available for in the relapse refractory setting. But in the newly diagnosed setting, we, and especially in young adult, young adult patients, we try to mirror or mimic uh, the pediatric approach. Excellent.
1: And um, another question for you, Dr. D'Angelo. Um, a question, um, uh, can I lower my risk of the leukemia progressing or coming back by changing my lifestyle?
3: That is an outstanding question that gets asked every single day. I see about thirty patients in clinic a day, and every single patient says the same thing and I wish I had a good answer uh, you know I think that the what I usually advise my patients to do is 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 be smart, uh eat well, eat healthy, uh, and you know focus on on, on nutrition. Uh, focus on uh, exercise or whatever uh, activities that, that the patient can do safely. Uh, what I don't encourage patients to do is go out to the health food store and buy lots of expensive nutrients and supplements, For two reasons. One is because A, they're expensive, but B, there's a lot of drug-drug interactions that we just don't know. And so the concern is having one of these supplements interact with the chemotherapy that they're receiving and then have a side effect and, and, and make it unable or have a delay in therapy. So what I usually advise my patients to do is eat well, eat smart, focus on healthy nutrition, and maintain your activity levels. The more you do, the more you're able to do, Uh, and I think that's the best advice that one can give.
1: That's excellent. Thank you. That's really, um, I think, very helpful to everyone. And um, another question from one of our participants for you, Dr. D'Angelo. I've just finished my treatment and am in remission. Is ALL hereditary? Is there anything my family can do to prevent them from getting ALL too?
3: Well, these are great questions, and congratulations to you for uh, successfully com- uh, completing therapy. Uh, the question about inherited uh, uh, leukemias in general, including ALL, uh, is an important question and one that we're just starting to tackle. So there are there are very rare subtypes of ALL that may, and I emphasize may, may have a heritable component. Remember that all leukemia is genetic, and I think this is where uh, people get a little uh, confused. So all leukemias are genetic, but most of those genetic changes in the cancer are acquired. That is, they develop as we age for unknown reason, but as we age and are not inherited from our parents and therefore not transmitted to our children. Obviously, as a parent, that's in a very important aspect. There are some exceptions, and, and we're learning about these. So, for example, uh, there is a small percentage of patients with ALL who have a mutation in a gene called P53, and those patients, rare, and I and you would know it if you had it, rare. Those patients I usually send to genetic counseling. Uh, there may be one or two other even rarer subtypes that we think may have a hereditary component, but. By and large, 97% of ALL in adults are not inherited with the exception of the one that I just mentioned.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, And this is a question for both um, for Dr. D'Angelo and for Ms. Edlund. Um, I'm receiving my stem cell treatment and feel so isolated. I miss my daughter who is seven and son three terribly. We talk over the phone and have brief visits, but it's not the same. I know it's not productive, but I can't seem to get over the fact that I am not there for them now and might not be there in the future. How can I stay positive? So um, the, um, I guess, um, Ms. Edwin, do you want to start with that one, actually, that kind of just like uh, um, that need to feel connected while um, by having treatment and things like that?
4: Absolutely. I. A very common concern for many people in treatment, and and I guess I think one important piece is to really try to find safe spaces to to share those feelings and to get some support. And whether that's through individual counseling and, uh, for example, Cancer Care does offer uh, free counseling services here that could provide you with a space to talk about this and strategize ideas. Uh, But perhaps more importantly, I would recommend connecting with a community community. To other people who are perhaps navigating some of these same um, issues and, and trying to find their way. And, and through support groups, I think you can, um, you know, find comfort and, and empowerment in joining a community of other people who really relate to to what you're going through. Um, and certainly through, um, you know, for example, cancer care uh, groups you can connect with that community, there's also a social worker facilitating uh, the group to provide additional resource ideas um, and really help draw out discussion themes and, and make sure the space remains respectful and safe. Um, but, but I think it, it's for those issues, you really do want to have a space to, to process them and, and to get support.
1: And Dr. D'Angelo, do you want to comment as well in terms of the length of time we're talking about and what, what's involved here?
3: Yeah, no, of course. And I you know, I'm very sensitive to this issue and uh and the important thing is to know you're not alone. Uh every patient has the same feelings. Uh you know, uh you know, it's hard to be away from family and friends. It's hard to undergo therapy for that's such a long duration. Uh it's hard to not know the 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 future. Uh and that's where it's important to uh to meet and have frank discussions with your treatment team. Uh, I know I try to uh, spend as much time as I can not only myself but my physician extenders. We always have social workers as was alluded to uh, and there' support groups uh, and these are very important in terms of getting through it uh, It's easier for me to say i'm I'm uh, not the patient, but it's always important to focus on the future. I think the future is bright. I'm an optimist by nature you have to be when you're an oncologist and you know and having patients get through it uh, is is exciting and and to know that you can be one of them uh is something that you have to hope for uh, you know you know I we just went to two weddings and I had uh two births uh to my page two of my patients gave birth to children so it's been a banner spring for uh for me and my group and and knowing that there is a light at the end of the tunnel uh will hopefully have uh uh lead you with some confidence and uh uh you know urgence that you know that you're going to get through this.
1: Excellent. Thank you. That's fine. And that actually we've been to this other question that <laughs> one of the online participants is asking about. Um, um how do A L treatments affect fertility? I'm a 20, 20, 22 year old woman and someday would like to have children.
3: So, that, so that's very important, uh, uh, and and that's a, the most important question that a lot of my pa- my younger patients say. Of course, as my wife always reminds me, men always have it easier than women. Uh, so, for men, what I usually do is we'll we'll make sure that they get sperm banked. Uh, for women, it's not so easy, but there are some approaches that can be taken uh, uh, either before therapy, if there's a window, or or after or between therapy. Uh, to do egg harvest or embryo harvest, depending if there's a partner. Uh, you, know, for ster- you know, Sterility is not all that common uh, in uh, leukemia. It, it depends upon the therapies. Uh, it depends upon the duration of the therapies. If patients require stem cell transplantation, by and large, that does uh, cause sterility. So it's important to have this discussion before uh, that uh, that happens. And it's important to discuss the treatment uh, regimen with your oncologist uh, before embarking on, on treatment because uh, oftentimes there are things that one can do. Uh, and, and for most of my young women, uh, I will uh, have them meet with a reproductive endocrinologist in order to try and outline options if available now, but often not, or available after they get into remission. Uh, and before we move on to more therapy. And obviously for men, as I've alluded to, uh, it's a little bit easier, uh, but the discussion is still important for them and needs to be addressed as early in the course as possible. Uh, But the goal is, of course, to design, and most of us have tried to design chemotherapeutic regimens which have the minimal impact on sterility. Uh, uh, Unfortunately for those patients who require stem cell transplantation, that. Uh, 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 there's very little to go around. Most of the patients will uh, will lose their fertility at that point. Right,
1: thank you. And uh, Ms. Edwin, do you want to comment as well? I guess it comes up a lot in the online groups that you run.
4: Yes, absolutely. Uh, we run um, several online groups for uh, young adults that are also navigating many of those same concerns. And Um, And again, just just to the point made earlier, it's so important to know that you're not alone in in this and having a space to have these discussions, in addition to, of course, connecting with your treatment team and reviewing options, it's important and I think it can help as, as you
1: are making plans for yourself and for the future. Oh, thank you. These are such important questions. I have to say, this is a remarkable call today, really. One amazing program, and actually, um, amazing questions. Actually, um, which are still coming in. And so, there's another question from the other end of the spectrum in terms of uh, continuum of life. And so, um, the question is, um, how is AL older people different from those who are younger? So, and what are their challenges?
3: So, I guess I'll tackle that one. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, you know, the disease spectrum as one ages is different. So although we're talking about one disease, ALL, uh, I subdivide it into three major groups, Philadelphia positive, Philadelphia negative, and then B cell versus T cell. But that oversimplifies uh, the spectrum greatly. Uh, the genetics and the genetic uh uh, types of leukemia uh, in the in an older age group, uh, 50 and over, which, given my age, it's not so old anymore, uh, is very different than in younger adults and and dramatically different uh, from the pediatric population. Uh, so there's a lot of differences in terms of uh, the the biology of the disease, and and then the the patient makeup, the chemotherapeutic agents that one uses on three-year-old kids is going to be Very different than what one is able to use on a 65 or 70 year old uh, adult patient. So there are some differences in terms of just biology as well as in the makeup of the patient uh, in terms of what patients can tolerate. Uh, we're trying with the new approaches, with blinatumumab and inotuzumab, uh, being, if you will, chemo-light approaches. Trying to use these agents and incorporate them with, with minimal chemotherapy to get better uh, uh, results, both in terms of higher response rates and more durable remissions. Uh, and there are ongoing clinical trials. A plug-in for clinical trials again, for our older patients with ALL. Uh, in terms of trying to navigate them through uh, this complex uh, 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 aspect. Uh, One interesting side note uh, before I I finish my answer to this question is that in patients 60 and over, approximately half of those patients will have a Philadelphia chromosome, and the newer approaches to the treatment of that disease is a chemo-light approach with a targeted agent, often a pill, uh, plus maybe some steroids and, and light dose chemotherapy, uh, and that you know, as I said, for fifty percent of the patients in this age group who have a Philadelphia chromosome, it's actually uh, taken a very difficult disease in the hist- and historically, and make it made it a much more easily treated disease.
1: Excellent. Oh, that's amazing. That's incredible. So actually, um, it sounds like all um, ages are. Uh, there's, there's something for everyone in, in terms of the treatment that's being worked out, it sounds like, is that, in terms of-
3: That's correct. That? Yeah, that's correct, and, and, uh, and you know, oftentimes these drugs are developed initially in a particular age group, and then once they're approved or as they're being approved are, uh, are then uh, navigated into other age groups and other disease settings. So when you have a drug that's approved, for example, in adults with relapse refractory that works. Well, the next thing is to then get it approved in both pediatric, older patients, and then newly diagnosed patients to try and really improve the outcomes. And that's, that's the approach that we're taking.
1: So an important takeaway for everybody on the call is that no matter what your age, in terms of the adult spectrum, do ask those questions of your doctors because you may be making assumptions that I guess aren't necessarily the case. Is that, is that correct, Dr. D'Angelo? But, really, but there are options for people. What Absolutely. Hearing.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's always mm-hmm. options, and uh, and you know for uh, for there's standard of care options obviously, but there's also clinical trial options for all patients. And so it's important to when you're, when, a, when you or a loved one is faced with a, this difficult decision, just to make sure that there's exploration of what options are available.
1: Ms. Evelyn, do you want to comment just on the online groups? I think that we do for old people as well, Um just on there, you know. This is consistent with some of the concerns you're hearing as well.
4: Sure. Um, well, again, just to say, um, you know, no matter where you are on the continuum of the disease, or, or, the, or the treatments, uh, or, or age, we we do offer a number of of different groups here um, that can provide you with a space where you feel like you're connecting with other people who are are in similar situations, similar circumstances, and and how important it is to just. Um, have a space to, to share and, and to, to discuss perhaps topics that you may hesitate to share with loved ones. You, know, you may not want to um, burden them and, 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 and want to share this with other people who are folks who really understand it and get it. Um, so the, the, the groups can really be a, a nice space to, to do that in. And whether that's in your hospital setting or, or virtually through an online space, um, you know, these, these groups are, are there for a reason and, and they can provide wonderful support to people.
1: Excellent. And this will be our last question. Um, and I'll start with Dr. D'Angelo. Um I cannot convince my father to take his medications for maintenance. He says he feels ill when he takes them. He's in remission now, but I worry about relapse. What should I do? So it's like adherence issues, but it sounds like something you're familiar with. And so, Dr. you please address this.
3: Yes, that's very. So obviously, the patients, uh, the medications do not work when they're in the medicine cabinet, as I always tell my patients. And uh, and compliance is important i don 't know what subsite, what uh what you know a subset of disease your father has, but if your oncologist is recommending maintenance therapy, which is very common in our patients with a l l maintenance therapy uh, often will continue for one to two years uh and f- until two two and a half years from the initial diagnosis, depending on the regimen uh looking at the outcomes in pediatric patients where almost all kids are treated on clinical trials we've looked at. Uh, uh, maintenance versus no maintenance, and maintenance is important. And we've also looked at compliance, uh, and it's impressive, uh, you know, when there is a, a non-compliant child, uh, the incidence of relapse really increases. Uh, so, maintenance is clearly important. So, that's the first issue. The second issue is if your father's is having uh, side effects from the maintenance therapy, uh, it's important to discuss those with your oncologist because depending upon the, uh, the side effects, one can either reduce the dose of the maintenance therapy or, or, or alter the supportive medications in order to uh, make the maintenance therapy more tolerable. But some maintenance therapy is better than no maintenance therapy, so it's important to, to really discuss that with your oncologist to try and figure out what exactly is going on and why, uh, uh, why the, the, your father doesn't want to take his maintenance. But, but not taking them is really not, not an optimal idea.
1: Excellent. Well, that's very helpful to hear, for everybody, and um, thank you for addressing that. It's an important question, really. Um, I hope that everyone will will adhere to this and and, and talk to your doctors about any problems you're having with your treatment. Um, I want to thank our speakers today. They've been extraordinary. I think you can't hear us applauding, but we are all applauding you. It's an amazing call. Um, It's a program that we have not done that often, so it's something we would like to do more often also for all of you as well. Um, also, I want to thank all of the participants you really asked wonderful questions online just an amazing group of questions um and um I just want to um and i also i had said and if we didn't get your question because I know there are more questions in queue that I'll give you some suggestions on how to get your questions answered and addressed. So um, I first of all want to let you all know that your healthcare team, of course, is your very the wonderful place to go with your questions. Or so like the last call, last person, their their concern about what do how do I handle the side effects. So really talk to your healthcare team. And even if your appointment is a month from now, if you're having something happening right now, you want to call your healthcare team. Don't wait till that next appointment to do that. But I know many of you like to go to other places to get information as well that are credible. We want you to go to credible sites. So we partnered on this program with many other blood cancer organizations, and I really we will be when you get your evaluation for today's program, you will be receiving um, also all of the resources that we have listed on the brochures and on the website that are organizations that are all well vetted and very well-respected organizations that you can contact, and there's no absences, and all of them provide the services for free. So that's a wonderful resource um, for all of you. Um, And perhaps most importantly, as we conclude the program today, and I think it's been said during the program, we don't want anyone to feel alone in coping with um, ALL, in coping with living with um, ALL or living with any cancer. We want you to now know that you have a number of resources at your fingertips, both your healthcare team. And there are a lot of actually nonprofit organizations like Cancer Care that are out there that you can contact whenever you're having a hard time or a difficult moment. Um, it really is important. You do not feel that you can't contact them. You do not have to wait till there's a crisis to call. You can call at any time. They're actually they're sta- they have, all of them, have, um, many of them have phone numbers you can call and websites that you can visit and, and post a concern or question, and they are what we, we responded to really promptly. They're all very good about that. We've put organizations here that we, we respect and that we work with actively ourselves. Most importantly, then, I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.